The Lord's Prayer is actually recorded in John 17, in Luke, and in Matthew, where we have the Lord's answer to the question, How should we pray? Dave Wordson begins today with a summary of what we have learned together and then wrestles with what it means to pray for God's kingdom to come. I think there could be a lot of surprised people if God responded to their request for His kingdom to reveal itself. From Monday through Saturday, have you really talked to the Lord intimately and personally as your daddy in heaven? Brought your needs before him? Spelled out your heartaches to him? Uh, really expressed that kind of tenderness and affection? Remember what we're trying to do is to take a portion of scripture that so often is repeated by believers in churches when they worship. And we're trying to recapture not just the ritual of it, but instead the real deep content of it. Let your name be set apart. We learned that hallowed means set apart your name or let your name be set apart in all the earth. In other words, let it be praised, let it be honored, let it be worshipped. And we talked about the fact that right in our song service is a way that we set apart the name of the Lord. And we're looking forward when we do that to a day in the future when all of the universe, all of heaven and earth will grow together and worship together and will bow down together to worship the Lord and his name will be hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. We want to begin the third petition, the third phrase that the Lord picks up on, and that is, Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, let your name be set apart. Then he says, what? Your kingdom come, you know it in the King James Version probably, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now the next couple weeks we're going to put together those three phrases. I want you to think about it. Thy kingdom come. And a kingdom has to do with authority. In order to have a kingdom, think about it, what it takes to have a kingdom. First of all, if you think of the word kingdom, in order to have a kingdom, you need to have a king. The beginning part of kingdom. We need to have a king, first of all. We also need to have that king express his law, express his will. And we need to have a people. That's the dumb part. We need to have a king, not the dumb part, no. But we need to have the kingdom of people. We also need to have a sphere of influence or a place. What makes a kingdom is a king, the king expressing his will among a group of people in a particular place or a particular sphere. I want you to stop and think about it. Jesus is saying, thy kingdom come. Now that implies that when Jesus was on the earth with his disciples, and I think it still applies today, if Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, it implies that presently what? It implies that presently the kingdom is not here. In other words, what it means is that among the king's subjects and in the king's sphere of influence, his authority is not being recognized. His authority is not being followed. Now, does anybody have any trouble with that? Well, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And let's talk, first of all, about the universal rule of the Lord, which is presently in effect. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, just keep flipping pages. You'll find Ephesians. By the way, I was in a Bible study, and I noticed I, I told them in the Bible study to turn to a particular verse of Scripture, and one of the people there watched some of the really skillful, older believers. They just ripped right out Ephesians. There it was, right there, and they found it immediately. 
And this other person was just sitting there. Man, they didn't know whether to look in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now, don't ever be embarrassed about that. If you haven't been raised, you know, I was raised in Awana and Word of Life and memorizing the books of the Bible, but I want to encourage everyone here. The average older believer doesn't even realize this themselves, but there is a table of contents in the Bible. Just like any other book, really, and I'm very serious about that, you can look in the beginning of your Bible, and whenever a preacher or some teacher says, well, turn to such and such a book, if you don't know where it is, look at the table of contents, get the page number, and then the books just go according to the chapter. So you don't ever have to be embarrassed. You can just look at the table of contents, find the page number in your Bible, open right to it, and you're there. So don't let these people just kind of go like that, you know, and kind of like Bible drill people, and you don't know where it is. So Ephesians chapter 1, I gave you a chance to find it. And look at this verse. It says, In Him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. In Him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan. God has a plan. And this God is working out everything according to the purpose of his will. Now we call this the universal will of God. The universal rule of God. And one thing I want you to know before we get into talking about the kingdom that we're to pray to come. A kingdom that's not here yet. We need to kind of rest secure to begin this morning. And understand that though that there is a sense in which the will of God is not being done on the earth. There's another sense in which it is. And we call this the universal sovereign plan of God. Another fancy theological word for it is the idea of the provenance of God. I want you to know that what this verse is telling us in Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, verse 11, and also the Psalms will often mention, the Lord rules over all the heaven and the earth. It's a very common phrase. The Old Testament and the New Testament is teaching us that as we sit here this morning, God is truly the king. And what this idea of him working out everything according to the count of his will, it's saying he's the author. He's the author of creation and he's the author of history. And he is writing the script. And so nothing is going to go haywire. Everything's going to eventually come out all right. Now that's real important. The universal will of God means that the game is secure. The victory is won. It's going to be all right. And so that's this idea of God working out everything according to the counsel of his will. But there's a hitch in that. Jesus also taught us to pray, your kingdom come. And if Jesus taught us to pray for a kingdom that's not here yet, then Jesus is talking about a rule and a sphere of influence and about an obedience to the king among a group of subjects which isn't happening right now. And that introduces us to the plot line of the Bible. You see, the author of all of history and all of creation is writing a story. And all good stories involve tension. Nobody likes to read a story in which nothing happens good, nothing happens bad, there's no crisis. In fact, for a TV generation, if you write TV stories, you got to get your person up in the tree, out on a limb, start sawing off the rim all in five minutes before the first advertisement, or you've lost your audience. That's what a TV writer does. He gets everyone into the crisis before the first ad. Why? Because that's the guts of a story. That's the guts of a novelist. It's the guts of writing short stories. It's also, where does all that come from? It's also part of the heart of God. 
He chose to write a story that's filled with crisis. It's filled with, with tremendous problems. And that brings up, we have a kingdom that is not presently at work in the world. As we sit here today, and we're praying for God's kingdom to come, why do we need to pray for God's kingdom to come? Because there's sickness, for example. Right in our own church family, our church is being torn apart in grievous emotional hurt over sickness. We've spent a lot of time in intensive care wards the last few weeks, and it continues. There's still the agony, the curse of death. Now, right now, we're in kind of another euphoria politically. But don't be seduced. Remember the euphoria that we had when we watched the Berlin Wall being torn down? As we think about this new world order, as believers, we can rejoice at the opportunity for there to be peace so that the gospel can go out. What we need to be very careful of is not to get caught up in a euphoria where we start to say, we can do it. We can bring about peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We can solve all the international problems. We can bring about utopia. And we don't even need the Messiah to come. That's when we fall into the spirit of Antichrist. And that's when we begin to move towards a world order that's not going to be headed up by the true king that we're called upon to worship, but by a counterfeit king, a human king who is empowered by the evil one, who's going to worship military might. So be careful about worshiping a kingdom that's totally built on the power of the military, that worships material might, that kind of worships Wall Street and the power of money. Be careful about those materialistic values. So we pray for peace, but this morning we've got to be very realistic. And the question I want every one of you to ask, and it's a very pertinent question. When I was in high school, I had a close friend. And he was a very skillful debater. In fact, he went to the University of Florida and he poured himself into debate. And he went all over the country winning a lot of NCAA debate tournaments. He went into politics and he, he joined some of the Florida politicians. And he got really heady about, let's do it. We can, we can pull up real victory in the political arena. Well, I haven't seen him do that in the state of Florida. But here was a young guy that poured himself into that. And man, you get on a high when you're, when you're running a campaign and you're all involved in that political high. If we can bring an answer to people, it's really a heady trip. But for the young people, it will disappoint you. It's going to let you down because no politician in the long run is going to be able to do it. You're not going to make it. And all of us need to ask ourselves the question, what king am I living for? Who am I pouring myself into? It doesn't mean that I don't have some secondary purposes that help me towards that great purpose. But every one of us, the next couple weeks, need to be taught to pray towards our ultimate goal, and that is for the kingdom to come. And I want you to build your life. Mary and I chose, when we were young, to build our lives praying for that kingdom to come and to do all that we could by the power of the Spirit to help bring that kingdom come. And it's made our lives work. It's made our lives have meaning. And it's produced a real substance over many years. And I covet that for every one of you. It's not just for ministers. It's not just for a few chosen people. God wants every single one of you to be praying for the kingdom to come. 
Now, why do we need to pray for that kingdom to come? Because that's the only kingdom, the only kingdom that's really going to last. And it begins in order to understand what the kingdom is like. And in fact, in order for me as a pastor teacher to say, adults, young people, and children, I want you to pour your life into trying to bring this kingdom and praying for it to come and being a part of it and looking forward for the Messiah, I owe it to you to tell you, well, how good is the kingdom? Well, we can get a glimpse of how good the kingdom is, how good the heart of God is, by going back to the beginning chapter of the Bible. Because the kingdom that Jesus prayed to come is introduced in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. First of all, I want you to know that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In fact, I want you to turn to your table of contents. Remember I talked to you about that? Everybody turn to your table of contents. Now look at the book of Genesis. Because what we're going to do is I'm going to show you through your table of contents how the kingdom works through the Bible. So you can hold your thumb kind of in the table of contents and then we'll kind of flip back and forth. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the rule of God created on the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, God the King created the heavens and the earth. Now as we go through this chapter, we've learned in the past that the key repetitive phrase of Genesis chapter 1 is, it is good, you got it. We, remember we studied that, we've done it in many different lessons because the Bible keeps coming back to that. So one of the essential natures of God's kingdom is, it is good. Tell me a little bit about the garden that God created. When we get to Genesis chapter 2, God creates the garden. What was the garden like? It was perfect, okay? It was perfect. What else was it like? It was beautiful? Like Hawaii, Mary says. You can tell where she wants to go. That's a good, I think that's a good analogy. It is. It's kind of like Hawaii, like the Japanese gardens in Hawaii, okay? As you read through this chapter, what do you like about the spring? What do you, what do you all like about the spring? The flowers? Have you ever noticed, you know, like when the fruit trees start budding, doesn't that do something inside of you? Well, that's the power of life for the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis chapter 1 that all the trees brought forth their seeds, and started to produce, and it was like this tremendous explosion of light. That's part of the Garden of Eden, part of the Garden of God's good kingdom, where you have the earth just exploding with the power of life. What else was it like? Peaceful, okay? It was peaceful. It talks about, in Genesis chapter 2, it talks about the different water. How many of you like, like streams flowing down? One of the most beautiful things of the Adirondacks is all these crystal clear flowing streams. And whenever you're backpacking and you get by one of those streams, it's tremendously refreshing. And that's part of this Garden of Eden thing. It's kind of, a, kind of a remembrance of this refreshment, of this beautiful water. What else do you know about the Garden of Eden? It was innocent, okay? There was no, they hadn't sinned yet. So there was an innocency, a joyful innocency. Blessing, fruitfulness, life kind of brings together kind of a summary of what God's kingdom is like. I really want you to really get a grip on that because we need to have a remembrance of what the heart of God is like. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have God's universal plan and also what I like to call his heart will, his heart plan. What flows right from the center, from the soul of his being. The way that he likes things is what I'm saying. 
You see, what is really true to the way that he wants things to be, you get a taste of that in Genesis 1 and 2. And all of you have described words like beauty, peace, refreshment, you know, overflowing, you know, just exploding vitality and life. No thorns, no thistles, beautiful flowers. As we go out into the world at the springtime, some of the beauty that you see is the mast. It's been covered over. It's been marred, but not totally distorted. So there's still kind of a remembrance of the garden. And it's very important to realize that. But what I'm telling you this morning is, when when Jesus says, pray for the kingdom to come, what you're praying for is a return to the garden. To go back into a a time and into into a place where the heart of God expresses itself perfectly and there's no rebellion against that heart. And as you're studying the Bible, we're going to find it. We kind of put it together. I want you to see how the Bible keeps telling the story and has this remembrance of the garden and yet how we move forward to really a new garden, a much better garden, a much more eternal, complete garden. But Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are so important in getting a hold of this story because it lays the foundation for what the kingdom of God is like. You say, well, Dave, is it that important? Yeah, it really is important. You see, there were some young people like in the Soviet Union, just like our young people over here, that started to read the writings of Karl Marx and Lenin about 75 or 80 years ago. More than that, more than 100 years ago now, really. And they started reading those things. And those ideas gave them a dream. It was a dream of a new culture, a new way of living, a way of people getting together, a way for there not to be poor people, for there to be, to be everyone's needs met. And they dreamed about that day. In fact, they produced a revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, to bring about that day. That nation poured themselves into that dream. You see, what they said is, in order to have this new dream, we need to lock this culture in a behavior pattern, which is why they created a dictatorship. And they said, by locking them into this behavior pattern, we can produce this kingdom that will be a kingdom of peace, of prosperity, of equality. It'll solve the problems of the Soviet Union. Shevard Nazi, in a personal interview, the tears began to roll down his face. Because he said, our dream was a lie. Our dream was a deception. We were taught from the time we were just little kids that the principles of Lenin and Marx and Engels could bring about utopia on earth. What has it brought us? It's brought us murder. What the Lord just drove home to my heart. Here's a man and his dream has been shattered. You know the thing that makes it really sad, though? You see, he had another dream, a dream of democracy, a dream that's a precious dream. It really is. And oh, how we can be so thankful and proud of the dream of democracy. And I believe that it's truly the best political system until the king really comes. But you know how my heart really ached? You see, Shevard Nazi tried to bring a dream of democracy to his people, but I live in a democracy. I live in a democracy and I live among a people who are supposed to be free. And yet right in the middle of the night, somebody calls me up. Anger exploded in our home. And I'm scared. What do I do? 
And somebody else comes and has to tell us about, you know, I, I worked for many, many years for my boss and then I got fired and now I don't have any financial security. Pray for me. And somebody else comes and says, man, I just had a, I just had a CAT scan run and I, I've got a real serious illness. I want to ask you a question. When you look at, has democracy really solved our problems? Has it really made us free? You see, what's wrong? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with the people? Would you look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2? It tells us about a place where there wasn't any malignancy, there wasn't any famine, there wasn't any bondage, there weren't any tyrants that were, were keeping people under vice grips and violently abusing them. Women weren't raped, and on and on we could go. And yet that's the world that we live in. Well, what has happened? Well, the Bible tells us what happened, and you know the story well. You turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent, this dragon, was more evil, more subtle than all the other animals of the field. And he comes and he asks Eve, has God really said you can't eat from all the trees of the garden? And he implied, like we've taught you many times in the past, he implied God really isn't good. God isn't the rightful king. You're living in his kingdom, and you shouldn't be obedient to him. If you really want to find the garden, if you really want to find peace and beauty and happiness and joy, if you really want to find fulfillment, you need to turn away from the king. You need to be your own king. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve chose to do. And according to the story of the Bible, the story is a story of man deep within his being, deep within every one of our hearts, we chose to go away from the king. In fact, as you sit here today, you need to understand this. Because our world, I guarantee you, over the next few weeks, a lot of people are going to misjudge this again. And they're not going to come to grips with the fact that the problem isn't political. It's not a social problem. It is your heart problem and my heart problem. And deep inside of every one of our hearts, there is a rebellious kingdom and Jesus says, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we need to also pray, may your will be done in my heart. Because even though I teach you the word of God, even though I'm committed to the word of God, there's a part of my heart that doesn't want to do what God wants me to do. How about you? Has anybody felt it inside of them this past week? I think I'm going to be God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. It's put to me all different ways. You know, like some people say, well, I want to get a, take a little break from God. I just don't really feel that spiritual anymore. I want to get away from him for a little while. That's one of the ways we express it. Another way, way that we express it is, well, I really think that this is the will of God. I say, but the Bible says so-and-so. The Bible says it ought to be like this. And they go, I know the Bible says it ought to be like this, but I think God is telling me to do it this way. And it's just another camouflage, another seduction to turn away from God. Now that's what was happening in Genesis chapter 3. Where all that came from is our Father, who generated all of us, ultimately, the human race, we're united in Adam, is a race that's gone away, away from the kingdom of God. And that's what creates the crisis of the story. You see, God's heart will, God's desired will, the core of his being, which is a core of life, of beauty, of health, of vitality, of productivity, is not being done. Because he chose to allow us to be free. He chose to allow us to make choices of relationship, and we made the wrong choice.
and he let us walk away from him. Now, as soon as you walk away, like I've taught you many times, as soon as you walk away from the author of life, you walk into death. As soon as you walk away from the author of health, you walk into sickness. As soon as you walk away from the God of truth, you walk into deception. And on and on it goes. You see, if you walk away from God, you walk away from the kingdom of life, of vitality, of productivity, of faithfulness, of dependability, and you start walking to a world that the Bible characterizes in a big way, the kingdom of darkness. Modern thinking constantly blames our problems on forces external to yourself. You can't keep a job because your bosses never understand you. You can't maintain a faithful marriage because your father or your mother never gave you the acceptance you craved. You cheat and lie because everyone around you does the same thing. The deceitful rationalizations and blaming others goes on and on, but you are never going to experience salvation for your own soul until you face the real problem. You sin because evil resides in the very fabric of your soul, and only Jesus can cure you. You must humbly admit this rebellion within and cry out to Jesus to deliver you. Our treachery is that bad. That explains why Jesus had to die, and only the power of his resurrection can turn the deadness of human spirit into a new creation that can respond to God's love. He can give sight to your blinded eyes, but you have to admit that you are blind. This is Mary Wurtson. And I have personally made this decision for Jesus. I challenge you to make the same commitment.